This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Approximately 7% of American school children attend a charter school, but most Americans have only a vague understanding as to what they are. Are they public schools, private schools, religious schools, or what are they? In fact, a charter school has a mix of private and public school characteristics. It's operated by a private organization, but it receives most of its money from either the state government or from local school boards, and it must be authorized by a state agency, though it has a lot of autonomy. Charter schools are definitely not religious schools today. They don't ask students to participate in religious exercises. But Americans don't know that. If you ask them about that, they think charters are either religious schools or they have no idea. But a recent decision by the United States Supreme Court could bring some new light to bear on this problem. And this decision was decided last summer. It's Carson v. Macon. And it says that any government aid to a private organization has to be available to religious ones if it's available to secular ones. Otherwise, the government's not permitting free exercise of religion. So are charter schools private organizations or public organizations? A lot will turn on that question if the Supreme Court tries to decide whether religious schools are constitutional or not. While this is a complex question, I'm very fortunate to have Nicole Garnett, a professor of law at Notre Dame University, uh, with me today to discuss her article on this subject that has just been published by Education Next. So thank you very much, Professor Garnett, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. Well, uh, Nicole, before we go into the charter school question, can you first tell me a bit about the recent Supreme Court decision, Carson v. Macon? Yes, sure. Um, so Maine and Vermont are unusual in that since the late uh, 1870s, they've had a practice, which is usually called tuitioning, but it's really a voucher program um, for kids who attend, who live in districts, school districts without high schools. And if a child lives in one of these districts, the Carson case was about the state of Maine. Um, the state gives those districts the option of allowing the kids in the district to take the money that the state would pay for their secondary education and attend um, a private school if they wish. They could attend a, a, another public school or they could attend a private school. Um, so Maine allowed children to attend in this voucher program, this modest voucher program for these rural kids, to attend religious schools until 1980. And in 1980, uh, Maine decided that it could no longer do so, that it was unconstitutional to allow kids that had tuition, that were tuitioned, had this voucher, to attend religious schools. So since 1980, uh, Maine has prohibited um, students with participating in this program from attending religious schools. Um, so since 1980, these children could go to any private school in the world, Maine or not, even in some of them went to French boarding school, but they could not go to a religious school. Um, this program had been challenged, the exclusion of religious schools from the options available to these kids had been challenged a number of times since the 1990s. I participated actually in the first lawsuit challenging this program's exclusion of religious schools in 1996. Um, we lost. So back in 1973, I think it was, the uh, Supreme Court said in Nyquist that the state of New York could not pay the tuition of people who attended a, a private school in, in New York. So now it says 
it's got to pay the tuition of somebody who's going to a private. Isn't that a direct overturning of what they had decided back in 1973 in Nyquist? So they don't use those words, but I think you're correct, Paul, that it is an overturning or an abandonment of an older rule. I mean, so in 1973, you're right, the Supreme Court says that to pay tuition for kids to attend private school violates the establishment clause. Now, you fast forward to 2002, the Supreme Court says in a case called Zellman that it is not unconstitutional um, for the for the state of Ohio to give vouchers to kids who attend religious schools, um, even though 96% of the kids on the in the voucher program for Cle in this Cleveland voucher program at issue attended religious schools. I think it's fair to say that that Zellman case overturned um, the Nyquist principle, at least. Well, I think that's right. I mean, Zellman comes so close to overturning Nyquist, it seems to me silly that they didn't just say, well, this overturns it. But uh, it was, uh, I don't know, they, they always hate to do this, I guess. But even that, decision doesn't say you have to fund religious schools. This goes well beyond even the Zellman decision, I think. It, it definitely does. So Zellman says that you can choose to allow kids uh, to go to private schools with public funds as long as it's the student's choice. So uh, it's not unconstitutional. It doesn't violate the establishment clause. The question is, after Zellman, must you allow them to if they wish? So can the state just say, you know what? We don't what Maine did after Zellman. Um, you know what? We don't want to. We don't want to pay for religious education. So here's a voucher, but you can't go to private uh, private religious school. You can only go to a private secular school. Um, and when I in 1996, that question was unanswered in 1996. Um, when I challenged both questions were unanswered, actually, when we first challenged that program in Maine. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's even before Zellman. Before Zellman. So we lost on establishment clause grounds. And then six years later, the Supreme Court says, no, it's okay. You can. So just tell me about the establishment clause. So when you say on establishment clause grounds, there's like, I think it's really interesting that there's actually two parts to the, the religious freedom clause in the First Amendment. One is the establishment. One, of the, Explain the difference between those two clauses. Well, it's a great, um, you know, some people have said, would say they've arguably come to mean the same thing, which is the government must be neutral toward religion. But the establishment clause says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That is, and then the second half, the free exercise clause is or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, the establishment clause and the free exercise clause, as you say, the religion clause of the Constitution applies to states, um, even though it says Congress. And so the establishment clause question is, would it violate, would it be a, respecting the establishment of religion to give money to children to attend a religious school at, that if they so chose? That was the issue in Zellman. The Supreme Court in Zellman says no. And the reason the Supreme Court says no, it says it's your two things. First of all, the program is neutral toward religion. It funds private schools, public schools, secular schools, religious schools. So the government isn't picking and choosing to send kids to religion. And the second um, is that the parents are the decision makers. So you're funding kids, not schools. So once you get past that establishment clause question, then the next question is, does saying no, you can't go to religious school, um, violate the second part of the religion clause, the free exercise clause? Is it a free exercise violation um, to say, you can go to a school, but you can't go to religious school. Here's some money, but not for a, relig a religious school. Or you know, any school can participate unless they're religious. Um, and that question takes 20 years to answer. Between Zellman and um, and uh, and Carson, there's exactly 20 years, almost 20 years to the day. Um, and the court says in Carson, you know what? Neutrality works both ways. The, the free exercise clause also requires neutrality. And a program that says you can go anywhere you want, but not religious schools is not neutral. 
Um, the answer to that, so it's, it's a free exercise clause violation because it's discriminating against um, religious schools. And, and okay, parents. so that's clear now. They've actually said you, you, if you have a program that aids some private institutions, you've got to make that program available to religious as well as non-religious institutions. But now the question is, are charter schools private institutions or are they state agencies? As I said in the opening, uh, you know, they're a mix. And it's, it, I just find it very difficult to get my head around, are they public or are they private institutions? So what's the legal answer to that? Well, it's not a straightforward answer. Um, so in, in Carson and in a previous case called Espinoza, which also dealt with the exact same issue, um, the, the majority, the chief justice says, the state need not subsidize private education, but if it chooses to do so, it cannot choose to just to, to refuse to subsidize religious schools. So the, the on-off switch is at the decision about whether or not to have private school choice. If you have private school choice, Espinoza and Carson say, then you must allow kids to choose religious schools. But your question is a great one, charter schools. So in dissent, in both Espinoza and in Carson, Justice Breyer says, what about charter schools? Is that a public, is that a, are they public schools or are they a program of private choice? Because if they're a program of private choice, then you have to let them be religious. So what's, how does, what, how does the law work that out? And well, I don't to... think uh, uh, Justice Roberts ever answered that question. He just sort of ducked it. Um, yeah, there are hints. I mean, I don't think Justice Roberts really was, I mean, I'm sure that they were arguing about it in conference or something, but that wasn't what, he's a, he's an incrementalist. So he was in, he's, he's not one to answer questions that aren't before him. Um, Justice Breyer, uh, his, his concurrence suggested he didn't, I mean, his dissent suggested he didn't quite know what a charter school was either. But I think um, the real question is, are they for federal constitutional? Well, I think he was saying, you know, there's no end to this. Once you open this door and say any aid to a private institution has to be available to a religious one, that's going to open the door to lots and lots of other subsidies of religion. And do we really want to go in that direction as a country? And charter schools are sort of a, an example of that. Charter schools, they, you know, the Charter School Alliance calls itself the Alliance for Charter Public Schools. That charter school people say public school every time they, they call themselves charter public schools. They don't yeah, even they say charter schools, school. they say charter public schools. Well, <laughs> aren't these public schools and therefore public schools cannot receive, they cannot have a religious identity. So, so you, um, your first point about it being ex extending beyond this, you know, voucher program in Maine is exactly true. I mean, and it extends beyond education. This neutrality principle extends to all government funding, and there's lots of government funding of lots of private entities that require the activity to be secular outside of the K-12 context. But we'll put that to the side. So the question, of course, is whether charter schools are private or public, and every state law calls them public schools. So. Um, that's one maybe hint. The problem is there's this very complicated um, constitutional doctrine. It's called the state action doctrine. And the basic idea is the Constitution of the United States, the Establishment Clause, for example, does not apply to private actors, except in very, very rare circumstances. So my kids can't say that I violate the First Amendment by making them you know, go to church. I'm not, I'm not bound by the Establishment Clause. I am the you're Establishment a, You're clause. a family. A family is not the state, right? You're, <laughs> you're, you're not private. So Families I'm private. are private. 
But what do you do about an entity that you, as you point out, gets public funds, is called public, but is privately operated? And there's this doctrine, the state action doctrine, which tries to, to draw that line to say that the Constitution only applies in these narrow circumstances. And the basic line is the following, that the government so pervasively controls or is intertwined with the private actor that the private actor's actions are the government's. So that's the line. So the question for whether a charter school for, for constitutional purposes is a state actor is whether is the government are the charter schools actions the, the government's actions. Now, um, and as as you know, as somebody who studies this stuff, charter schools are are different entities, different regulated differently, controlled differently in different states. Some states control them more pervasively. Some states allow them have a lot more freedom. They're they're less regulated than public schools. State, there's the Supreme Court has made some things clear. Public funding does not make you the st a state actor, near, nor does pervasive government regulation, and nor does what the, the government calls you. So the, the fact that they're called public is not dispositive of the question. Public utilities, there's a case about whether public utilities are state actors. They're often private. Supreme Court says, I don't care that we don't care that they're called public utilities. They're not the government, they're not state actors. Funding and regulation. There's a case about um, a school that was 100% funded by the government, pervasively regulated, that educated disabled kids. And then the Supreme Court says that's not a state actor. So um, the the I think that in most states, charter schools are not state actors. I mean, they can call themselves public if they want to. I mean, in other contexts, in other countries, the public okay, and private. Is there any, any uh, your, I respect your opinion, but how about what courts have said? Are there any lower court decisions? I know the Supreme Court has yet to rule on this, but are there any lower court decisions that, that where the court has said, yes, they are state actors? Yes. So there, there's um, a, a very clear, what we call in Supreme Court terms, circuit split. Um, the lower courts, are, the district courts, the trial courts have had varieties of rulings on this, and they've gone both ways. But at the Court of Appeals level, the Ninth Circuit, um, about a decade ago, said that an Arizona charter school was not a state actor. Um, it was a due process case with teacher sued the school after she was sued the school for getting fired and claimed that her process rights were, vi were violated. The Ninth Circuit, which is out in the West, said no, because the school wasn't a state actor, the due process clause didn't bind it. But um, just about a year ago, the Fourth Circuit, which is on the East Coast, said that a North Carolina classical charter school was a state actor. Um, that, that case, which is called Charter Day versus Peltier, um, didn't have anything to do with religion. The, it was an equal protection challenge to a, a, a uniform requirement in a charter in a classical charter school that required girls to wear skirts. The, the school defends itself saying, we're not a state actor. The equal protection clause doesn't bind us. The Fourth Circuit says, yes, it does. So now there's a circuit split. Okay, so now circuit split. In, in, uh, you know, in, in my Constitutional Law 101 course, I was told that a circuit split is exactly when the Supreme Court says, well, we better get involved here. When you have two lower courts who that reach opposite conclusions on the same question, we all of a sudden don't have a unified legal code. We have the law, one thing in one part of the country, another thing in another part of the country, and it's a federal law. So is the Supreme Court gonna take on this North Carolina case? 
Well, you are right that the court often uh, circuit splits are a signal that the court, because they do want uniformity when it comes to the interpretation of federal law, for example, the state action doctrine. So the fact that there's a, a circuit split or a split, as we would call it when I was clerking in the Supreme Court, um, is a signal that the court might take it. Um, I could get into the weeds, but I won't. Let me just say that I was, um, I think the court may take this case. So so this case has now been appealed to the Supreme Court, the North Carolina this, case. That the North Carolina case. Is, there's a pending uh, petition for the asking the court to, to take the case and review and it. So what happens? How does the court decide to uh, take a case or not take a case? I know they don't have to take the case. So how do they decide whether or not to take the case? Well, they have discretionary jurisdiction in most cases. So they don't have to take it. Um, one of the reasons that they might take it is um, to uh, clear up a legal dis disagreement among the lower courts, as we just discussed. That's called circuit split. Another reason they might take it is if the if a um, the lower court got it really wrong. The court typically take cases to fix error, the correct error. But if the lower court really screwed up the law and it had a broad implication for, let's say, large numbers of private organizations, it might take the case to, because they're concerned that too many you know, private organizations are being swept into the state action. So, so it, it takes how many justices to, to decide to bring it up? To you have to have four justices must grant, uh, must vote to grant a case obviously you need five votes to make a final decision about whether on the merits, but four justices um, grant can so vote. So any to four grant. justices can agree to take it up, and and I, I heard a rumor earlier today actually that there's talk that they are inclined to take it up. Is this is there a signal coming out of the court that they might be taking this issue up, uh, although they haven't decided quite yet. There is a signal that they well. There's definitely a signal that they're of the hundreds and hundreds of petitions before it. They're paying attention to this one because this week um, they asked the Solicitor General of the United States to weigh in on the the case. So that's called calling for the views of the Solicitor General, um, and it takes four justices, as far as I know, um, to ask for the the views of the Solicitor General. So four justices are interested at least in the case. Um, it's not uncommon for the court in, in a case that it's interested in to, especially on a big, important federal issue like the state action doctrine, to ask for the United States to weigh in and say whether they think the United States thinks that the court should take the case. It's the court, uh, the, the Solicitor General will tell the court not to take the case. I mean, they they weighed in in North Carolina. So I we know what the Solicitor General thinks about this. But so the fact that they asked suggests that the court is if not leaning toward taking it, it at least suggests that four people who have the power to grant the petition want to know what the government, the United States government thinks. So that is a signal that they're very interested in this case. Well, let's fast forward here. I'm going to imagine something. I'm going to imagine they do take the case. There's a majority to say charter schools are not state institutions. You must have religious charter schools if you're going to have secular ones. Um, how is that going to actually be implemented out there in the real world? Are charter authorizers going to be compelled to authorize religious schools if, if a religious school applies? Well, so just to backtrack a little bit, um, the Supreme Court will know there's no possibility in this North Carolina case that they will say that um, the 
states must authorize religious schools. The only question in this case is whether or not North Carolina charter schools are the government or not. Now, the, the, the rest of it flows from that, right? But there'll be, there'd have to be other litigation to, to work that out. Like that, this case, this North Carolina case will not resolve that question. Um, the court undoubtedly knows that it is a question, though, I'm sure, because Justice Breyer was talking about it in the last two cases. Um, so what? how does it play out on the, on the ground? Obviously, um, charter school uh, authorizers regularly say no to charter schools. In fact, they increasingly say no to charter schools. Um, and so they can say no to a charter school that is religious. They just wouldn't be able to say no to a charter school because it is religious. That is, if the free access, if we get to the point in the law, which we're a long way away from, that it's clear the free exercise clause requires religious charter schools, right? It doesn't prohibit them because if it's a state actor, it prohibits the establishment clause probably prohibits them. Get past that. We get to the free exercise claim, charter school wins. Then we're in a world in which charter schools are permitted Um. I think the answer to the state action question, not to really get into the weeds, but because they're so different in different states might be different in different states. So this North Carolina case might just answer the question for North Carolina, not for South Carolina. I mean, it, it's really a complicated legal because charter schools are so complicated as entities and they're so different in different states. There's no one single answer to the question. But leaving that aside, let's say we live in a world where religious charter schools are not only permissible, but required. What it means is that charter authorizers have to treat applications for religious charter schools the same way they treat every other application, which is to say they can say no, but they can't say no because it's religious. But this also suggests that there could be charter authorizers around who actually want to authorize religious schools, and they don't do it now because they don't think they have the authority to do that. But once this decision is made, they may have that authority, and you might find that in some states there are authorizers who are prepared tomorrow to authorize religious schools. You could see some, some definite move forward towards religious charter schools, uh, not because they're compelled to, but because they want to, and now they can. Surely, I'm sure that there are authorizers out there that would be happy to authorize religious charter schools, interestingly in the, um, but think they can't. So interestingly in this, Charter Day case, uh, uh, the state of Texas filed a brief with for 10 states on the charter school side saying effectively our charter schools are private schools. So you would assume those authorizers wouldn't have enough position to religious charter schools. Some states allow um, private universities to authorize charter schools, including religious universities. Private religious universities, I would assume, would be inclined if, if they were able to authorize religious charter schools. They probably just, the law prohibits them from doing so. So yeah, if it became a possibility, some charter, charter authorizers might jump at the chance. They might like the, I think it would be good. It, they would like the plural, the pluralism that, you know, it added to the charter landscape. Um, it's, it's pretty well known. A couple of, about a month or so ago, the state, the Attorney General of Oklahoma um, issued a letter, uh, an opinion letter. Uh, and in that letter, he said, you know, I thought about it. And after Carson, it's unconstitutional to prohibit religious charter schools. So I'm telling you authorizers in the state, not only you can do it, you probably have to. And so there will be an application for a religious charter school in Oklahoma very shortly. Um, and it's well known that's out there in the news. It was, there's a, uh, the 74 had an article about it today. Um, I don't know how the authorizer will react, but the, the Oklahoma has opened the door 
for religious charter schools. Of course, I just think. the opinion of the solicitor general for the, uh, or no, for the of the attorney general for the uh, state of Oklahoma, especially when he's just about re to retire, doesn't really settle much, does it? That's just that person's opinion. But uh, but it I opens doesn't up doesn't have the force for of law, but it 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 is saying what so. Um, the, it doesn't it doesn't have the force of law so it says this is i'm giving you basically what it's saying is i'm giving you permission to do this and you probably should i mean stop discriminating in my view as the attorney general stop discriminating um and that doesn't answer legal questions in any binding way but it does suggest that the state of oklahoma has um thinks that authorizing religious charter schools is a good idea. I doubt that that Attorney General O'Connor did this without talking to the governor and the charter school board. I wasn't there, but I wouldn't think he was like, you know, flying off the handle. So um, the charter school board does not have to play by this rule. It doesn't have to, it's not an order. It's just an, it's just advice giving. And of course, if the charter school, if the virtual charter school board approves this um, application that's coming, then it would probably be challenged by the ACLU or something, and there'd be litigation about whether it's a public or a private entity. Um, there, there will probably soon be litigation challenging from the other direction, prohibitions on religious charter schools. I, I think I've been surprised talking, because I've been talking about this for a long time, but since the Oklahoma letter, how much people are talking about it and whether people are thinking about suing, asking whether it'd be a good idea to sue, will another state do this? So I, I think there's gonna be movement more quickly than I expected. And if the court takes this case in, in North Carolina, there'll be movement even more quickly than I expected. Well, this is amazing uh, development. Uh, things are changing on the ground more quickly than I have ed ever imagined. And thank you for clarifying it because it's been a very confusing space and I really find your insights very, helpful and our readers will if they take a good look at the article you just uh, thank you and for education next so uh thank you for joining me on sure, uh, thanks so much for having me i've been speaking with professor nicole stell garnett a professor of law at notre dame university she's the author of a just released article in education next on the possibility that states can fund religious charter schools this is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday at noon Eastern time when another Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education X website.